Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. everyone, this is the Progressive Britain History Project, part of the Progressive Britain podcast. In each episode, we look at different aspects of the Labour Party's past with the aim of promoting a clearer understanding of its contested history, perhaps busting a few myths along the way, introducing some new ways of thinking, and making connections between Labour's history, its present, and future. I'm Laura Beers, Professor of History at American University in Washington, D.C., here with my colleague Stephen Fielding, now Emeritus Professor of Political History at the University of Nottingham. Hey, Steve. Hello, Laura. And we are very excited to be joined today by Professor Peter Mandler, Professor of Cultural History at the University of Cambridge, and the author of The Crisis of Meritocracy, Britain's Transition to Mass Education Since the Second World War, published in 2020, and now working on a Nation at School, The Experience of Universal Secondary Education in the UK Since 1945, which is a joint project with Laura Carter and Chris Jepson. So we're very excited to have you here today to talk to us about the Labour Party and education. Peter, thanks for joining us. Always happy to talk about education. <laughs> okay. So I want to start off and just jump right in there with a kind of big and difficult question, but then we can um, you know, take that as we will and move from there. But about really the position of the current um, the current Labour Party and the Shadow Cabinet vis-a-vis education and why perhaps it's um, not as much to the foreground as in past um, past periods when Labour has been in opposition or in government. And I'm thinking back, you know, of course, famously to, to Tony Blair's education, education, education and his real um, prioritizing prioritizing of the issue going into the 97 campaign, but also the role of, um, you know, past labor governments in putting education to the fore and thinking about Callahan's Ruskin College speech um, early in his premiership and his push for comprehensivization or, you know, Wilson's role in, um, in promoting the open university. Or, I mean, we can debate the degree to which the Attlee government back in 45 really did make education a priority um, during that administration. But here we have seen and we have heard from the labor opposition about what they would do differently, particularly in terms of um, removing the charitable status of, of private schools and using the tax income that would generate to help fund the state school system. But they haven't made education as much of a priority. And I wonder um I could see Steve because we can we could see each other being like, I'm not sure I agree with you, Laura. So you'll have your chance to give your your counter narrative, Steve. But I mean, I don't feel that it's been politically to the foreground as much. And I wonder what your thoughts are on that, Peter, in terms of of comparative political prioritization. Yeah. I mean, I think I should confess at the very outset um, that I'm something of a heretic, especially in the current context, and that I think we tend to overrate the significance um, of politicians in determining the course and fate of the educational system. I mean, I don't think that's true in general, but it's particularly true in Britain uh, since the Second World War because we have a very decentralized education system and it's also a very demand-driven system. So 
I don't think what politicians do and say is, is as important as people imagine. Uh, you know, the Butler Act did not create a tripartite system. Tony Crossland did not abolish the grammar schools, et cetera. And I don't even think that Thatcher and, and her successors really succeeded in thoroughly marketizing the education system. But I, I, and I'm curious to hear Steve's counter narrative because I, I, I do agree with you that compared at least certainly to new labor, education plays uh, much less of a role in the in new labor redivivus in the sort of Keir Starmer era. In, and I think, I mean, as I say, I'm interested in, in both of your uh, own explanations for why this should be. But I mean, I think an obvious explanation is that it's been overwritten by, especially in a, in a, in a situation um, uh, where any future labor government is going to be under very tight fiscal constraints. It's been overwritten by two other issues, which everyone knows are unavoidable and also expensive. One is how to deal with the consequences of Brexit. And the other is the how to deal with the consequences of the pandemic, especially on the NHS. So, you know, a, a labor government, insofar as it has a heritage and has to follow a sort of historical path, it's, you know, it does have to spring to the defense of the NHS before anything else. And uh, it needs more defending than anything else. Um, uh, I think it's a shame because, uh, I mean, we could get into this a little bit later, but uh, um it's both the labor governments of the 60s and 70s and of new labor did spend a lot more money on education than their predecessors and their followers. And it's going to, it's hard to see how a, a, a labor government in the near future is going to be able to match that. Well, Steve, do you want to come in with, give us the, the counter argument that the labor government in waiting has big plans in terms of revolutionizing <laughs> British education? Uh, yeah, I mean, my, my, my usual role generally is to be a bit of a stammerist. Uh, but I'm not, I wouldn't, what I wouldn't say um, is, is, is sort of come to the defense of, of Keir Starmer and say, oh, it's, no, it's all going to be uh, very different. There's a huge priority. It's one of the, his five missions. If you don't know what the other four are. Nobody else does. But it is one of his five missions. Um, and so it's there, right? It's there. Now, given given the state of public opinion, because uh, I just looked at what YouGov fa- has found that, you know, in terms of top priorities, education is not a top priority. It's only 13% of the population thinks education is a, is a top national priority, which I find quite surprising given what we're told and what we know about problems with teachers, pay, lack of them, you know, the, the estate is crumbling. Um, so but Steve, don't you think that's because other issues have risen not uh, and they've sort of artificially suppressed education? Oh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, um, the NHS and the economy are way up there. I mean, uh, the economy is 56% think it's the top. And that kind of explains the constraints that the Starmer government, when it comes in, will be facing with regard to education. And Bridget Phillipson, who, who gave a speech just the other day, she made it very clear. You know, there's, it's going to be a question of focusing. Um, I mean, she started off by giving us the same tropes that we've heard from virtually every single Labour education secretary about the purpose of education. It's to um, fulfilment, potential in, on an individual level, but it's to help the economy. That's that's something which all Labour speakers have even you know, since the sixties at the very least have have focused on. But lack of resources, she was very very blunt about that and about how resources are going to be focused on early, you know, the, the early years, which is something that I think Labour is is building on a on an established probably within edu- well clearly within education circles that if you want to address inequality. And that's a consistent theme, that education is seen as an important route to address inequalities. You start as early as possible. Um, I mean, I looked at the 1983 Labour Manifesto, um, looking for education, you know, the, the longest suicide note in history. And actually, that starts off in terms of education. So we're going to establish a national sort of system for under fives, as if this was a new thing. So... So there are sort of some consistencies there through through the new Labour period, um, and it's going to um, abolish tax loopholes on private education, but not necessarily to abolish private education. That's the 1983 manifesto, and even in 2019, Labour didn't commit itself to abolishing private education. So, so what I would say is that actually, um, in maybe the new Labour period is an exception. You know, it did double the amount of money spent 
um, on on education or nearly doubled it. Um, that, that that this this incoming Labour government, you know, very probably is actually there's a lot of commonalities, but the problem for it is there's no money, so it's going to focus it on early careers, uh, early 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 years, and that's that's just a question of. The, the inheritance it's, it's going to, you know, have yeah, to do. I, I agree with a lot of that. I think there are just two things I would say to slightly modify that view. First of all, um, uh, you know, there, there was a consistent um, uh, evidence in opinion polls that when you ask people about public services from the 50s through the 90s, what they cared most about was health and education, way above everything else. And what we've seen now, and I, as, as I said earlier, I suspect this is partly an, a, a kind of crowding out effect of the pandemic, is that, is that health remains up there, but education does not. And that, that could change, um, but it's, it's worrying if you care about education and if you want more money for education. And the second thing I'd say is that um, if you look at the proportion of GDP spent on education by public bodies, and that's that's a slightly unreliable measure because it depends on demography. You know, it depends on the size of the co- of the age cohort. Um, but it's a rough guide. If you look at the proportion of, of GDP spent by public bodies, uh, actually, labor does have a, a distinctive record. It it reached it it, it fluctuates between three point five and five point five percent of GDP, sometimes edging up to six. That's the range. It was near the top of the range in the late 60s um, and through the mid 70s. Then it fell down quite catastrophically to the bottom of the range in the nine, by the 90s. That's the Thatcher effect. And one reason why um, Blair made education, education, education such a priority was that the, uh, there was a lot of evidence that public opinion was very conscious of this. They could see the effects on their kids' schools. They wanted something done about it. And then, as you said, during New Labour, um, they um, made a real push, and it, again, it, it um, moved to the top of the of that band. In fact, over the top. I mean, it, it, I think it, an all time high in two thousand and seven. Um, and since then, it has fallen again to the about three point nine percent, and that's below the OECD average. It, except the last two years, it jerked up again, and that's only because the the GDP didn't rise during the uh, during the uh, pandemic and the education expenditure remains stable. So the Tories have got a a little bit of an artificial boost, but still their record is terrible on just expenditure. So, you know, if there was money, this would be, you know, one place you would want to put it. And I agree, I would put it in in early years. But the problem is neither public opinion nor the the fiscal um, situation is going to permit that. Sorry, Laura. Uh, Well, I just wanted to ask you a follow-up question, Um, given that one of the things I think is difficult for people to wrap their heads around about education is it is so decentralized, as you say, and it is sort of driven by local authority and funding and also by, to a lesser degree, what's happening at a national level, right? So when you say, you started off by saying, I actually don't think that governments have much effect here because it's so decentralized. So are you suggesting that labor governments have sort of put national funding to boost local authority spending or that labor governments prioritizing education has led local authorities to kind of shift how much as a proportion they put into education? Yeah, well, I mean, like a lot of government funding since the late 19th century, central government provides the money, but it's spent by lots of different bodies. Yeah. And that's true, you know, practically every everything. Um, so I do think labor put more money in. I just don't think that the structural changes that we tend to focus on, ones I mentioned, tripartite or bipartite system, comprehensivization, marketization, don't think those made much difference. So I do think they put in more money and it used to flow through, um, local authorities. Now it flows through schools and, and multi-academy trusts. Um, the source of the money has always been central government. Um, it's just, it, it's off. It's, as I said, it's very demand driven, you know, it has to do with, um, you know, um, how many bodies are, you know, present in any given school and what kind of, and how, how long they stay in and what kind of education they, um, require. So, um, so I, yeah, I do think the funding levels do, they obviously do matter and they do vary with, 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 with political control. 
Well, yeah, it used to be the case, though, didn't it, that um, in the immediate post-war period, um, although the Attlee government retained the tripartite system, um, I mean, it did at least make grammar schools free, which they hadn't been before. Oh, no, um, that, was, that was the 1944 Act. Oh, that yeah, but it, it, it continued that. It continued. It yeah, continued. Right. That was quite, a consensus. I mean, every, yes. all parties agreed that, that um, you know, state education should be free. By the way, um, there wasn't really a tripartite system I mean, again, that's what the Butler the Butler Act doesn't even say what the system should be. It just says local authorities should provide education suited to the needs and abilities of their populations. They don't say anything about what kind of schools. So local authorities are on their own, and there's a wide variety of models. It's just that tripartite, or it's bipartite, really. This is grammar schools and secondary modernists is kind of the way most, but not by any means, all local authorities played out. Um, but there was a there was a general consensus across the parties on that system. It started to break down when parents, who were now for, for the first time, all of their children were subjected to the 11 plus, started complaining that, you know, some of their some kids got a good education and other kids got a crap education. And that, that wasn't the case with the health, National Health Service. National Health Service, you, did, you know, the ambulance comes and says, well, should we send you to the good hospital or to the bad hospital? That depends on your social class or how well you performed on a test. That and it just doesn't work that way. But the education system did, and parents really got shirty about that. So again, I don't think it had much to do with the party. But, comp- but comprehensives became a kind of Labour issue, didn't it? I mean, Labour was the one that was pushing it through. Yeah. It was local authority. It was local authorities in the 1950s. Yeah, Labor, but Tory local but... authorities were just as likely to to, to abolish the 11 plus. Um, um, Edward Boyle, who was the, the you know liberal Tory education minister in the late 50s and 60s, he said, look, if you open a new uh, housing estate in a suburban location in Sussex or Hampshire or Surrey, no one thinks any longer you should build two schools side by side, a good one, well-funded one for the middle classes and a poorer, less well-funded one for the working classes. I mean, he was saying that in the, in the, in the 60s. But politically, it became a labor, a labor thing, didn't it? Well, they, they hit their chest and said, I mean, so, so when Tony Crossland becomes um, education um, secretary in '65, um, he he goes to his his uh, his uh, civil servants and he says, "All right, I want to have a instruction to all the local authorities to that they should abolish the 11 plus, and I don't care what they replace it with, but it's got to be non-selective." And his his official said, "Well, actually, all the Scottish and Welsh authorities and three quarters of the la- of the of the English authorities already have plans to do that. So go ahead, that will be a great success." Yes. And ever since then, it's been associated with Tony Crossland. In terms of how, if Labour's had a distinctive way of thinking about education, I mean, in, in the 50s and the 60s, I went through all kinds of sort of Labour Party stuff. And the, the idea that comprehensive education was going to help build a new society, a classless society, create community, break down barriers... And, and that was, you know, the, the right wing of the Labour Party kind of adhered to that as much as the left wing up to a point. Yep. So that, but that's kind of gone um, for all kinds of reasons. So there was, there was a reason, you know, there was something distinct, but it's much weaker now. Actually, I'm not sure about that. Laura, what were you going to say? Okay. <laughs> well, I was actually going to swing back to one of the points that Peter's made to me in conversation and that he's made in his work, that the push against grammar schools in that it came from parents wasn't really that you know an objection to grammar schools but a desire for effectively grammar schools for all for their students in comprehensives to have as good an education as students in grammar schools and in that the grammar school comprehensive battle was a a hard fought and enduring one for quite a period of time it's largely been resolved right i mean comprehensivization is more or less the norm with a few pockets of, of grammar schools and now the political rhetoric at least right is that the state system should offer as good an education as a private school. And you see Bridget Phillipson, come, she came out in the speech that you mentioned earlier, Steve, saying, you know, we can understand and we don't judge people who send their students or their children to private schools because our state schools just aren't up to the task and aren't providing the same level of education. And we want that to change. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in that they're making a play for these middle class potential swing voters who, at least in the world of the Times and the Telegraph's description of them, are all, when they put together their annual budget, 
calculating school fees as a necessary part of it because they can't possibly send their kids Mm -hmm. to state school, right? Isn't the conversation sort of shifted from comprehensive versus grammar to state versus private? Yeah, I I, I largely agree with that. And I think that would be sort of my response to Steve's point as well, which is, I mean, mean, obviously, yes, Labor nailed itself ideologically to the mast of comprehensive, uh, comprehensive education in the 60s. And it, and it did build it into its idea of the better society, no doubt about it. Um, and as you guys were both telling me in, when we were talking about this before this um, podcast, I mean, you know, there, you know, the Labor Party Conference had been voting for comprehensive education um, since the early 40s. Uh, Dick Crossman said uh, after one of these votes, they all went to grammar school. Uh, about the delegates at party conference, you know, and so they can, you know, talk about comprehensive till they're blue in the face. Um, uh, and he wasn't r- entirely right, wasn't entirely wrong. But anyway, so yeah, obviously labor associated itself with that. And similarly, the Tories did sporadically associate themselves with grammar schools. I mean, they they were really defending tooth and nail, the little pockets that Laura mentions in the 70s. Um, and then in, in the early 90s, they start to play kind of very gingerly with a revival of selection and some of the of the junior um, uh, education spokespeople in the early 90s were sort of making teasing jokes about the s word not meaning selection but meaning specialization but really you know probing to see it, maybe there is some public appetite to bring the 11 plus back and actually the opinion polls showed that the number of people who wanted the 11 plus back in the early 90s was rising but I think since um, new labor. I think you're right, Laura. I think that is that's debate is more or less over. I mean, Theresa May, you know, again, she was throwing some red meat to her right wing and saying, oh, well, we will expand some existing gra- uh, grammar schools. But it was all pretty much tokenistic. We all know how tokenistic uh, a lot of the uh, I- uh, inside uh, uh, um, struggles of the of Tory party have been, including, you know, today. Um, and no doubt they will continue to, to do that. But, you know, I think, I mean, Rishi Sunak, especially sensitive on this subject because he went to Winchester and gave them a ton of monies to build new labs. Um, uh, I mean, pr- his own private money. Um, uh, I, I don't think, uh, I mean, where, whereas Johnson might have played with that, um, I don't think Rishi is going to play with that. And I think pretty much there's a consensus that, yeah, what what all governments need to do is to show the electorate that they're providing really good state schools. You know, it's true that rhetorically Bridget Phillipson and Labour always puts this in terms of state schools versus private schools. But I think that gives a misleading impression about the appeal of private schools. The The proportion of students in private schools has remained absolutely stable for 100 years at about 6 to 7% of the um, of the of the age cohort, there has not been some surge of demand for uh, independent education because of the collapse of funding for state schools. Maybe you think there should be, and maybe um, the assumption is that there has been. But I think it's important to say that there hasn't been. You know, the you know most people can't afford those fees. They don't want to afford those fees because, as you say, Laura, the consensus is the state should be providing a good quality education for everyone. I think that. That's really a done deal. And I think one of the things, you know, that the Blair government, I mean, to sort of talk about the the last, you know, new Labour government, which really did focus on education. Yeah. One of the things that it did focus on, too, was both improving education, but then also improving the opportunities of state secondary school students to go into universities, right? And shifting, if you've had a static proportion of people in private education, the proportion of university places that were taken up by that small sliver has changed dramatically in the past 30 years, right? Um, oh, that was that preceded New Labour. Yeah, but it was accelerated by New Labour significantly, yeah. wasn't it? No, no. I thought that was... Um, no, that, it, I mean, it started in the in the mid-80s, early mid-80s. Um, it started even earlier when more mature women started going back to higher education, mostly the polytechnic sector, which the state had no control over. And then... Keith Joseph tried to put a break on this, but he was kind of overwhelmed. And when Ken Baker was brought in to replace him, he basically let loose the the constraints and he set a target. You know, everyone complains, oh, Tony Blair set a target of 50%. That was so stupid. But actually, uh, Baker set a target of 30% in 1989, and the target was met by 1994. I mean, it was just uh, booming um, even before New Labour came in. It's continued to, to ratchet up ever since, but the, the the floodgates were opened by the Tories. And again, this 
it didn't really have anything to do with the Tories. It had to do with parental pressure and student pressure. That That's my, you know, that's my heretical view. Yeah, I, I just wonder if we just sort of focus a bit on, on private education, because, um, I mean, Tony Crossland, he wasn't exactly alone in saying it, that it was a single, single biggest cause of class consciousness. Um, and, you know, the very recent experience of, of the uh, sort of the influence of old Etonians on British politics and the, mm. the sort of the way in which they've they've kind of dominated things. And, and in fact, pri- those who are privately educated now are more, well, at least in terms of various studies, they're, they're all over, over the cultural industries now. Um, they're, they're dominating politics maybe in a bit more than they used to, at least into you know relatively post-war period. That private education, at least from the view of a progressive, um, is is a toxic thing. And yet, and yet, like I said, I think uh, early on, even the 1983 and 2019 manifestos didn't say they would abolish it. I mean, what's 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 the problem um, really for with with the Labour and the progressives in private education? Why aren't they doing something about it? Yeah, well, as you pointed out, I mean, Bridget Philipson is actually proposing, and I think they will do it, something that the, uh, the 1983 manifesto promised, which is to re- remove the charitable tax status for independent schools. That I believe will happen, and that money, which you know is not a huge sum of money, but it's not a paltry sum, will be directed to state education, especially early years. And not just that, um, you know, they, they're making vague promises about school building, which is desperate, teacher pay, which is desperate. I mean, as I say, we're at the bottom end of the OECD um, in, in the amount of money we spend on education. It's not going to go very far, but at least she is making that promise. On the other hand, and here again, I'm going to be a little heretical, it's very easy to cherry pick some old Etonians. And obviously, Boris Johnson's cabinet, I mean, Theresa May's cabinet, by the way, had fewer um, independent school educated members than any Tory cabinet in history. But Johnson's went back up again. And we all know that's, you know, that he lives in a, in a different world. And, and uh, Rishi's is also near Johnson's levels. I think it's 61%. Um, uh, and, you know, you can cherry pick some names from the arts, which people do all the time, you know, Dominic West and, you know, Eddie Redmayne. But, <laughs> Anyone but, who's on an HBO, um, you know, program basically uh, went to eat. Uh, um, anyone, anyone in the Queen. But yeah. the sociologists um, at LSE, led by Sam Friedman and Aaron Reeves, have been doing some really interesting quantitative work. Now, I don't entirely share their method. I don't entirely believe in their methodology because they use who's who rather more than I think is. is. But they show that there's been in a secular decline in the uh, presence of independence, especially the top independent schools in um, various British I- elites. So I'd be a little bit careful about generalizing from Boris. That's all. It's a comparative decline, but even Theresa May's government had a lower proportion than past Tory governments, but it's still significantly higher than the general population. And even the last two Labour governments, Blair and Brown's governments, had about 30% of their cabinet made up of you know private student privately educated individuals whereas only as you said six to seven percent of the population are so i mean it's still a 500 fold sure. kind of advantage to entering cabinet even in a labor government well no fivefold fivefold yes 500 percent more yeah. likely five-fold. um so i no i i'm not look a i'm not defending independent schools i'm not have no interest in doing that b um i'm not defending the record of recent governments. Um, all I'm saying is that one has to be a little cautious of doing what the media does, which is to cherry pick a few very conspicuous individuals um, and to draw generalizations about the culture based on them without looking at, you know, a, a bigger pool of data. And there are people who do that, and I just want to give them a shout out, right? And so, yes, and I think that's why the Bridget Phillipson policy is a good one, and I think that's why it will be popular. But, you know, I think one of the reasons why I insist upon this so much is that if you, if it is only six to seven percent, it it's not going to not, either taking neither taking away their money nor taking away their educational privilege is going to make as much difference for the lives of the ninety three percent as you would like, as I would like. Do we think it will at least be successful in being able to earmark that money for education, right? Because the one thing that's nice about saying all right, we'll tax private schools and then we'll use that to build school infrastructure as at a time when there's a desperate need for money, which as we sort of talked about starting this program 
It's saying, okay, we're going to generate this new tax and we're not going to use it to address all these other problems, including the NHS, as we talked about, but we're going to earmark it for education. You know, we'll take these money from private schools and we'll give them to state schools. Yeah, and, and can is I that give at you least a... going to guarantee that state schools get some more money? No, no, that's absolutely right. And there's another benefit to this policy. Um, so there are only two areas where labor has been brave enough to say we're going to take money away from people. One is non-DOMs, non-doms. and the other is p- private school um, people. Now, any future Labour government is going to do anything ambitious. It's going to have to find some way of taxing wealth and especially taxing very high incomes. And, you know, it's made one go um, at it by advocating windfall profits taxes. That's a good idea. These two, non-DOMs and private school fees, are another way of doing it by the back door without actually raising marginal rates. Now, so I think that's a really good idea. Um, and it's not just good for the reason that you say, which is correct, but also for this other reason that it is actually beginning to put into into currency the idea that you should be taxing the concentrations of wealth and high incomes. But it's still quite modest in terms of the amount of money that it's going to reap. So so are we are we making a case that goes against the initial case that Laura was making about the lack of radicalism and the lack of importance that the Starmer government that may happen places on education in the sense that, I mean, no Labour government has has taken away charitable status. No Labour government has done that and then put it into state schools. I mean, that's quite a class conscious um, kind of uh, policy in many, in many ways. Um I mean, is that you know? So, so I mean, it's in, in another way. It's kind of what what's taken you so long? Because in nineteen, I think nineteen eighty three was the first manifesto when Labour went in saying we're going to deal with some tax loopholes. Um, although I think the policy of abolishing ta- um, charitable status was mooted in nineteen sixty eight within the Labour Party as a serious um, policy. Um, they've never ever adopt not, not adopted. It's taken a hell of a long time to get to this. Um, I mean, it's really slow progress, isn't it? Yeah, and that is progress. I agree. I mean, I I think on the non-DOMs, I mean, Bridget Philipson mentioned that, I think a bit cheekily, because I think every minister gets to mention that one because they haven't decided where that money is going to. So she's just the education um, um, uh, shadow minister. So she has to say it's it's relevant to education, but it's probably also relevant to agriculture and mm. Um, you know, everything else. So I don't know. I'm a, I, I'd be a little skeptical about how much of that money is going to flow to education. But absolutely. I, I mean, I was sharing the general view of all three of us that uh, taking charitable status, it'll be popular. It will um, it will draw a line between rich people and the rest, which is always a good thing uh, if you want to make a more progressive tax structure. And it will benefit state education. I guess, Steve, coming sort of to slightly pivot the conversation, but to come piggyback off of Steve's comments about why did it take so long? Mm. I mean, is the answer perhaps because it hasn't been, you know, I think that the Labour Party has assumed rightly or wrongly that there's so much political capital that they can expend on the issue of education. And they've then had to prioritize. And I'm thinking back to my own work on Ellen Wilkinson, who briefly served before her death in 1947 as education minister in Clement Attlee's. Um, labor government, right? And the reason that she didn't go after private schools was not because she was super in favor of them, right? And I mean, she did some things on the margins to kind of, you know, make them more accessible in terms of state grants for some students. But it was because she thought, if we're going to expend political capital on education, better to use it to ensure that the raising of the school leaving age actually happens, better to use it in terms of thinking about things like school meals, um, which was one thing the 45 Labour government did, right, was, I mean, they stole money from um, family allowances to do it, but was to provide universal free school lunches. And one of the things that Philipson is talking about, right, is, um, you know, having breakfast clubs in schools and thinking about, and, you know, as Rashford really flagged up for for the general public, the edu- the link between nutrition and nourishment and schools as a place of nourishment and social leveling and learning, Right. And are we seeing, is that just been more of a priority thinking about those issues of kind of what schools can provide, um, you know, as sites of of social leveling, then dealing with what, as Peter has emphasized, is only six or seven percent of the population and, you know, maybe just not the most important issue as labor leaders have seen. I think I think you're right that um, I mean, there there is a sort of difference between what in theory 
most Labour members probably would want to do, which is get rid of private education because it, it is you know does promote class consciousness and it could be seen to be toxic in different ways. That's how they would definitely say. It. And yet, you know, a Labour government has got to make a difference to the people that vote for it. And abolishing private education is difficult and in the short term isn't going to help many Labour voters' children and grandchildren. So I think I think yeah Labour's usually gone for the pragmatic um, rather than the the you know the ideological um, in in education, yeah, I agree with both of those points. And in fact, um, uh, you know, when uh, when Tony Crossland was campaigning against the eleven plus, um, the Tories kept saying, "Oh well, you know, you you're abolishing grammar schools, but you're not abolishing independent schools like the one you went to." And that was always a, uh, that was always he went to Highgate. That was always a, a, a sore point for labor ministers until relatively recently, when more of them started going coming from state schools. And I think, you know, the, the, the other problem was for Labour's point of view was that, you know, um, New Labour was seriously relaxed about people getting rich. And then that meant they could spend what they, whatever they wanted, their, spend their money on whatever they wanted to. Um, and they were focusing instead, as you say, Steve, on, on um, delivering something for their own um, voters. Um, but I also think that I think that Laura's point is, is important and one should also flag up Sadiq Khan's, I think, pro- quite popular decision to extend free school meals to all primary school kids, um, which I think was a quite a, a, I mean, that's probably the most ambitious policy statement made by any labor politician on education in the last five years. And again, I think it, as Laura says, it, it, um, it reminds people that schools are not just places where you, you know, get on in life, but they're places of care and places where, you know, civil and social equality can be regarded. And as I said earlier, I think uh, taking away charitable status without abolishing, you know, you're not saying, oh, you can't spend your money on independent education if you choose, but you're not, we're not going to make it easy for you. We're not going to give you special inducements. And I think they're probably right to think that that will um, um, hit private school enrollments. And it will, as I say, help to leach away some of the uh, surplus income of very rich people. One reason why the proportion hasn't risen above 67% is that independent schools are really expensive now. And even professional people can't come close to affording them. And despite what you hear in the press, bursaries and all that, you know, I forget what it is, but it's a tiny percentage of independent schools kids who are on bursaries. And, so I'm uh, going to use the cost as another pivot then. Um, and I'll, I'll start with a joke about um, a long ago ex-boyfriend of mine who was a posh Tory by background when I was in graduate school and who said to me back in the day before university fees were introduced, oh, well, you know, Americans have to spend all their money on university fees. But in Britain, you could it, you could take that money and spend it on private schools so you could get into universities. But now, of course, <laughs> the British... <laughs> also have to spend their money on university fees, perhaps making that, again, very problematic statement in the first place. <laughs> in fact, and in fact, Laura, if yes. if a wealthy person wants to put their money into education now, it makes more sense for them to put it into paying fees up front than it does, it, I mean, university fees up front and avoiding uh, the subsequent tax on their children rather than paying for independent school fees. Oh, so, yes, so that and that's important. part of the... The fact that it now is not, you know, a, a private education is not the obvious roadway into higher education in the way that it previously had been, which is a major reform. I mean, and we can, you know, debate how much of that is is down to government policy versus just changing social pressures. Well, it's it's, it's just the growth of the cohort, you know. I mean, it, you know, when when fifteen percent of the population went to higher education, which was true in the seventies. And seven percent are in private schools. They're they're going to be a large proportion, but now it's fifty percent, and there's still only seven percent. So it's a smaller proportion. It's just that's just the way it works. But I mean, in that it is fifty percent, um, yeah. you know. And I'd like to talk about universities and the way that universities have been politicized within, um, you know, both parties in politics because universities seem to have become, in a sense, the bad guys. I mean, there's a dual rhetoric: one that you know, our universities are world-class and it's so great. And they are a huge export in terms of bringing foreign currency into this country and helping the trade deficit, right? But on the other hand, they're presented as, you know, these elite institutions that benefit only a small part of the population and therefore, 
you know, should not receive state funding. And as if in some ways they're akin to private schools, right? But they're they're not in that if private schools disappeared tomorrow, Britain would still function as a country. But if there was no higher education, you know, things would go south really quick, right? Um, but I mean, how has, and I feel that labor has played into this to a certain extent, right? In, in that they say anything about higher education, they're saying, okay, well, we'll try to lower interest rates on um, university debt. They're not sort of thinking about how to improve the sector in the longer term. And how does that political dynamic bode yeah. for the future of higher education? Yeah, that's, uh, um, so I think another interest, in fact, probably the only really interesting aspect of Bridget Phillips' speech, because most of the rest of it was things that had been said before. But I think a really interesting one is that she made an explicit statement against um, the the policy of reducing the proportion of young people who go to higher education. She said, well, it may be 50% nationally, but it's not 50% everywhere. And we don't want to deprive people. And these are the people, she said, that the Labour Party was founded to support. That's a really unusual thing to say nowadays. Um, it's not 50% in, dis, in disadvantaged or deprived areas. And we don't want to deprive any young person of the right to go to higher education. Now, that was a very strong statement. And that was deliberately aimed against the, 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 the chit-chat that you get in Tory circles, especially pioneered by the skills minister, Robert Haltham, about you know, too many people who go to university. Now, I think the Tories are very cautious about playing with that argument because they know that when they said that in the past, in the 80s, it really bit, bit them, came back to bite them and hurt them really badly. And so they don't want to get on that bandwagon unless they think the public opinion agrees with them, which at present it probably doesn't. So I thought it was interesting that Philipson was putting herself very firmly on the other side of that debate and was happy to see continued growth in higher education. But as you say, Laura, that raises the question of how do you pay for it? And, you know, at present, it's a it's a it's a big burden either on the state or on students or both. <laughs> and it's not really allowed to be a burden on students beyond a certain degree because of the cap on fees. Right. And which gets you into these debates about bringing in foreign students because they can be charged yeah. outrageous amounts that British students can't be charged. Yeah. And the kind of difficulty which we've seen in the news in terms of Sunak's government saying, all right, well, foreign students who come to universities can't bring their dependents with them while they study. And will that impact the number of foreign students Britain can bring in to help subsidize the sector? And that's something that Labour's been awfully quiet on, right? I mean, I have no idea. Maybe Steve, who um, who's down in the weeds closer than I am, knows the secret policy of the um, you know, shadow cabinet on this, but I don't. Um, they no. seem to have been really mum about this kind of attack on foreign students. But at the same time, you know, foreign students are are footing the bill for an underfunded sector to a degree. Obviously, I mean, Labour tries to stay mum on immigration whenever it can. Um, I'm pretty confident that Labour will take a pretty benign view of international students because, as you say, they need them to solve the um, education finance problem. And actually, they don't really belong in the immigration count. Well, yeah. yeah. I, w I went to a meeting with David Willits um, when he was education minister and we, I guess this, it was under Chatham House rules, but I suppose enough time has passed. Um, and, I'm, and I remember we saying to him, look, the Home Office counts students as immigrants. I mean, that doesn't make any sense, does it? He says, it's totally bonkers. Right. <laughs> and, you know, the, nothing in, um, infuriated the education um, department more than the Home Office's determination to make international students look bad. It's an easy win for Labour to kind of finesse that i think and also to cut, cut the immigration um numbers as well if you're being a bit cynical <laughs> yeah, about things totally, totally. Um, yeah. but yeah I, I mean everything is really to be there's lots of consultations that are going to be had um i mean obviously there's going to be there's going to be a big public inquiry like yeah. brown and maybe even like robbins i i and i think that's a good mm -hmm. thing you need a social yeah. compact i'm not it's, sure what the solution would be frankly because the, the 2019 manifesto in terms of higher education was we're going to end, you know, the market in higher education. We're going to abolish all tuition fees. And it's just how are you going to pay for all? I mean, that's just enormous. So so there's a huge practical problem, I mean, let alone governance. I mean, how universities are managed and their relationship to each other in the local communities. I mean, there is there's certainly scope 
and and building on what Philipson had said, which is you know it is it is very interesting what she did say that that fifty percent doesn't include the places that she's you know that she she came from, she's come from um, that. Those those kind of the new universities, which are most in danger of falling into, well, they're in debt, falling, just falling out of the whole system. Those play a really important role in the kinds of communities, the red wall labor labor, labor towns um, that 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 labor needs to to sort of do things about and is aware of having to do things about. Yeah, so, I, I, so it I mean, might all be integrated, but it's all it's all up in the air at the moment. The the, the big problem. I mean, so I'm a big supporter of new higher education institutions in in disadvantaged areas. And there, there's, I don't think higher education has that huge an impact on the economic growth, but there's ways to, to help, as you say, to integrate it into a wider policy of regeneration. The problem is, how do you keep the graduates from moving to London? Because the, you know, you, we can build new higher education institutions all over the North of England and in South Wales and in the central belt of Scotland, but the, those people, once they get the credentials, tend to gravitate to the higher wage areas. And that's mm-hmm. a big problem. Again, this is a very decentralized demand-led system. And it's really hard to control. Um, I think I think the best thing to do is to pour a lot of research funds into those areas. So, I mean, from via higher education, so that and 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 you know, make better ties to local employment. And that doesn't mean industry or technology, because local employment in those areas can very often mean services and um, and um, and you know not the traditional uh, objects of industrial policy, but I think a, using education is to directly invest in deprived communities is a good idea. But it's it, the hard part is getting the, the graduates to stay. And I think I think you've raised an important point there about how education is not a discrete policy area. That the yeah. success and failure of of education policy and and, and the ambitions that a, a Labour government might have for it. It's all interconnected with all kinds of other considerations. So, yeah, it's uh, it's it's and, and given that the economy is so difficult at the moment, it's it's there's there's so many things that need to be clarified, and then we need to know what the context will be when Labour gets into office. If you go to Middlesbrough, you find that um, you know, which is one of the most shell shocked cities in Britain. You'll find that Teesside University is doing lots of the things that the local authority used to do. I mean, not just education, but running the local art gallery, that kind of thing. And they need help because, as you say, they're the most vulnerable under the current funding model. And that will be something that would do, that will build, rebuild, help rebuild civil society in Middlesbrough, which it mm. desperately needs. On the other hand, the population of Middlesbrough is falling. People are voting with their feet. There's a reason mm. for that. And the graduates from Teesside are leaving. Well, I mean, you think of, again, going back to Steve's point about interconnectedness and, you know, discussions both about the economy, but the NHS and immigration, you know, the the importing of NHS workers um, has been one of, you know, part of that conversation about immigration. And yet the lack of, of training, um, medical training, you know, I mean, having hospitals affiliated with universities, you know, is one obvious answer in some of these communities, but that requires investment. And as we say, funds are short on the ground and goes back to this question of, you know, both how the NHS and the education system in Britain are going to get that cash infusion they need after, you know, more than 15 years of significant underinvestment in social services. Um, But this is a depressing statement. (laughs) (laughs) The thing is, Things, Phillips. I mean, if we kind of started, maybe and maybe ending, maybe is appropriate. But Phillipson's speech, where she's essentially saying, "Well, there's not that much money. We're going to have to focus on the early, early years." Um, she's. I think the quote is, "But we will fix it. We will fix all these things. But it it will not take just one." term of a Labour government. And that's one of the things that, again, everything's interconnected. I mean, one reason why New Labour made such an impact on on education, at least in terms of spending, and, and to some extent, it did reduce inequalities in outcome, though that's a bit moot, um, is because it kept winning elections. So a long-term Starmer government isn't really going to fix things, is it? They've already postponed the, the, uh, the green industrial policy to halfway through the parliament, because they know they won't have the money tomorrow. And the green industrial policy does depend on a robust, you know, 
education sector in order to realize those ambitions. I mean, you have to have people trained up and skilled in order to see that through. Yeah, I mean, actually, the, the, I've read an interesting report recently on um, on skills and, and the, 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 the point that was made, which I kind of instinctively um, agree with, is that the, the problem in Britain is not lack of skills. The problem is lack of demand for skills. Mm-hmm. And that's because there's no investment going into the big infrastructural projects, which would employ people for with those skills. And so, um, you know, you do need, I do think, it, I mean, I won't, I don't like to call it an industrial policy because I think that makes people think of, you know, grinding gears and belching factories and the, the, you know, economic development is not about industry anymore. It's very often about things like healthcare. Um, um, but it's also, it is about transport and things that make the economy more efficient, all work more efficient. And I do think the biggest challenge for an incoming labor government is, is getting the economy going again. And this is something that new labor also learned, which is, you know, you have more money to spend on people if you earn more money. Thatcher, of course, said that, but then she spent less money on people if she could. So it didn't sound very plausible. It sounded more plausible from new labor. Whether, so here's whether a pitch, the- guys. If you missed it, go back and listen to our earlier podcast with Jim Tomlinson, where we talk about the capacity or potential to grow the economy right. under a future labor government. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Peter, even if part of this conversation was just a dispiriting, how are we going to get any of this done? But um, it was... It's better than nothing, as Steve said. That's Steve's sort of mantra, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Incrementalist. It's better than nothing. The new new labor (laughs) mantra. (laughs) Thanks for having me. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.